0: Grit to me means learning, It's the willingness to learn, the willingness to call yourself out for the mistakes that you've made so that you can improve yourself, improve your team, improve your customers, improve your business. And so if you're dedicating yourself to the concept of learning, then you will have grit.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin. Business Development and Go-To-Market Operating Partner at Kleiner Perkins. And I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. Before we jump in with our amazing guest today, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Loom. If you haven't heard of Loom, you should definitely check them out. They're bringing video messaging to work. Using Loom is like sending a text instead of making a phone call, but you're using video. You don't need to schedule anything or coordinate with anyone. Just record, hit stop, and a link to your video message is instantly ready to share. Turns out it's really good for sales. Our portfolio companies use Loom when they're doing outreach and sending a demo video is just so much more engaging than an email. It's super fast, fun, and the best part, it's free. Sign up today at loom.com. And now, on to this episode. Jane, thanks for the time. Of course. The two topics that I want to cover with you are leading with vulnerability and five mistakes that first-time managers make. Those are the two things that I'd like to touch on for sure with you. And reason being, I think you're uniquely qualified to talk about the five mistakes first-time managers make came from a talk that you gave at Saster. Actually, before you and I have even met, I listened to the talk and thought it was awesome. So super grateful and fortunate for you to be here. Jumping in, I'm going to read you your background as I understand it. And then I want you to fill in any gaps that I might have, okay? So you did your undergrad at Columbia. Then you spent three years selling your soul to Goldman Sachs doing iBanking. And you went to GSB, Stanford, for graduate school. Brief stint at Oak Hill Investments. Before landing at Toma Bravo, which is in my mind one of the most reputable private equity shops around. You were a VP there for two years at Success Factors, where you were the manager of the business operations team. Then my intuition is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this was kind of your first sales stint, director of emerging markets and online sales at Success Factors. Yep. And you did that for about a year. Then I think that was probably the triggering point when SAP acquired Success Factors. And you jumped in to be the global VP of cloud corporate sales.
0: That's right.
1: And then you went on to be the VP of North America sales at Optimizely. And you did that for two years. Ilia, one of our partners, was an investor there. Then you went to CircleCI, which is where you are now. You were the VP of revenue for two years. And you are currently the CRO and have been there for a sum of about three years. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that is.
1: Okay. So I'll tell you, doing my research, there is another Jane Kim. I found some drama and she ran for mayor of San Francisco. And she, you're laughing. You know what I'm going to say. And she sits on the board of supervisors, I think. And yeah. there was some drama where your picture was put in lieu of her picture. I don't know. What was it? You tell me. Yes.
0: Yeah. It was actually in the San Francisco Business Journal, I believe, was a publication. And they ran a story about Supervisor Jane Kim, and they ran it with my picture. <laughs> <laughs> and so the controversy obviously came from the fact that they mixed us up, and then it raised a bunch of questions about Asian American representation and sort of the willingness to make sure to represent the right people, despite sort of same names or maybe even similar backgrounds. Unreal. Yeah, it was one and only time I was ever Twitter famous.
1: (laughs) There you go. So CircleCI just raised their Series E about a month ago. This was from IVP. And Sapphire. And Sapphire. Yep. That's amazing. Congrats. You guys are obviously doing pretty well to raise that.
0: Thank you.
1: Good time to raise a bunch of money and have some dry powder. What's the plan from your perspective?
0: Thank you for asking about that. And for those who aren't familiar with CircleCI, we are a continuous integration and delivery platform for software development teams who are really focused on building a DevOps practice. So we automate, build, test, and deploy for development teams so that they can focus on shipping quality code faster and with greater confidence. And we are super thrilled to raise our Series E. It's a good testament. It's a great proof point of both our market and how valuable this is for technology companies to invest in ways of, like I said, shipping faster with more confidence. And in us as a company, we've been growing at a great clip, and this will allow us to continue to expand, continue to invest in our product or platform. One of the areas I'm focusing on is our growth internationally. So last year really launched in Asia and in Europe.
1: And you just opened an office in London, right?
0: That's right. Last year we opened up an office in London, and the year before that we opened up an office in Tokyo.
1: I feel like we take for granted what fast growth means. Like even you kind of like blew through it. And I think we live in this insane bubble of Silicon Valley where if you're not slack or whatever, you're not growing fast. So just for perspective, in May of 2018, CI had 130 employees. This was two years ago in this month. Now you're at over 300. That's incredible. Like that is insane growth. Offices everywhere. I don't think people really appreciate that.
0: I mean, to give you some perspective, so I joined CircleCI, it's been about just over three years. And when I joined the revenue team, and revenue at CircleCI means sales and customer success. So really the whole customer relationship. When I joined the revenue team was seven people, and now we are just shy of 90 in three years. It's insane. <laughs> I joke that I like blacked out the whole first year because it was just insanity to try to build the team, figure out what we're doing, how we're selling it, how we're building our customer relationships to where we are now.
1: Like when you go from 70 to 100, you feel it like it's a tectonic shift in the culture of the company, just adding 30 people, let alone adding, you know, 80 in your organization alone. And then when you say revenue, just for the audience to qualify that, does that include Inside sales, BDRs, that includes AEs both in the field and inside, as well as customer success? Yes. Okay.
0: And it also includes operations.
1: What does that mean? Like sales ops, deals desk, that kind of thing? Yes. So you're expanding everywhere, opening offices everywhere. When you're going into a new market... What's the first role that you hire for? Maybe I'll unpack that a little bit more. So I come from the DevOps world. It's a technical sale. It is not easy to sell. And there's a lot of education and handholding with the market. And it's a technical buyer to some degree where they have a lot of questions and the POCs are quite rigorous with integrations and that kind of thing. I've heard of organizations in this space actually putting an SE in the market first. What do you think about that?
0: Really depends, and I have the benefit of you know being at companies at various different stages of scale and growth. I've been at public companies, private companies, been acquired, right, been part of a global conglomerate, and so understanding how companies look and act at different stages of growth has been really valuable during my time at Circle CI. And when we think about new regions, one thing to remember is that each region is different. Each market is slightly different. And so the playbook you may have for one region may not apply for the other. And so one thing going into any new market is be open. One of the questions I always ask myself is, what is it that I don't know, right? Because you don't know what you don't know. And so stepping into a market, if you come in with a lot of preconceived assumptions, you may miss the boat. You may miss something that is really key to that market. I think that goes with the people as well. I don't think there are any hard and fast rules in terms of the first people you'd hire. So for instance, the way we grew in Asia was different than the way that we grew in Europe. It was all based off of how we saw the customer base growing. So in Europe, we saw there was just a lot more top of the funnel, inbound leads, sort of the more traditional types of leads that you would see from more of a traditional marketing sales type of sales motion, which led us to really think about hiring salespeople, account executives, as being the first people in that market versus when we were in Japan, CircleCI has a hybrid model. Like we have a very traditional tops down marketing, generating leads, passing that to sales and closing them. But we also have a freemium model where any person can walk onto the CircleCI platform, use it for free for the rest of their lives. Or they could swipe a credit card and start with a small self serve plan to give you a sense of range. My smallest customer pays us about $30 a month, and my largest customer pays us millions and millions of dollars a year, which is a pretty wide range in terms of a customer base. And so in Japan, we ended up hiring more technical folks first because it was much more of a self-serve base that kind of grew bottoms up on its own. And we really needed to support the customers that were already there versus in Europe where we saw a much more greenfield opportunity to go after. And so you really just need to look at the signals of each of your different markets to try to understand, you know, what are the needs of that market at that time and then hire accordingly.
1: And double clicking on bottoms up, tops down. It's a very hard go to market motion. I don't know how else to say it because there's so many constituents that are involved in the decision-making process. And more and more, as CIOs have more responsibilities and tools to implement, decision-making gets pushed down further in the organization. And so this technical buyer has started to emerge to some degree where they're being empowered as not only the person testing the product, but often having a lot of say in the recommendation to the ultimate decision-maker. That's tricky. Like there's a lot to navigate. And I think ultimately- There is a delta of communication between the technical decision maker and then being able to take all of the technical nuances, value, and all the things that you showed, like solutions you're going to solve for that customer, and then bubbling that up as business value. Like, here's why we should quantify this as a buying thing. How do you bridge that delta? And by the way, that's a giant question, so take it how you will.
0: No, it is one that we think about every day because what you just said absolutely resonates. It is absolutely a technical product. We sell it to a very technical audience. And so there is a technical buyer. And that is one thing that's a little bit more unique to developer tools. But I think a lot of other lines of businesses are starting to sell in this way. But you're right. A lot of the decision making is pushed down, at least in terms of the technical requirements of the platform. And so The way we think about it is it's both our opportunity and our challenge. It gives us multiple different entry points into that account. So you could engage with, you know, the end users, sort of the bottom of the funnel, or you typically think of as bottom of the decision-making process, but they are empowered. They're the ones out there testing, learning, experimenting, and engaging with the different platforms ever before it comes to their manager or really procurement or anyone else who's making the economic buying decision. But we also have a traditional tops down where we're engaging with the CTO, the CIO, more centralized services teams where they make the tooling decisions that are then pushed out and adopted by their user groups. And we have everything in between. And so it is an opportunity because in sales, one of the best things is always having multiple entry points. You always wanna have multiple conversations the ability to triangulate across people, across stakeholders, just really increases the amount of engagement that you have in any sales cycle. So it gives you more touch points. But at the same time, you have to be very clear about who plays what role in that evaluation so that you don't end up in sort of rabbit hole conversations with people who don't end up having the power to make those types of decisions. We also work really closely to your point about it being really technical. Our solutions engineers are really, truly engineers with like a capital E. And it's incredibly important that they truly understand what it's like to be in our customer's shoes. That means, you know, understanding everything that they're trying to accomplish, what their day-to-days are like. And so we hire truly engineers on that side. And that's a real strength on that. But then on the sales side, then we can really invest on the business side. And it's all about collaboration. As long as the account executives and the solutions engineers are able to work in partnership, then they can both bring their unique strengths to that evaluation. The AE with their ability to run the business evaluation, and then the SEs with their ability to run the technical evaluation.
1: SEs are the heroes, pretty much 10 times out of 10. Did you start with freemium? Has it always been freemium from the get-go? And I ask that because a lot of the Kleiner Perkins portfolio is thinking about really reducing friction around top of funnel. Like that's what it is. And often that's freemium. Sometimes it's open core, open source. There's a million variations of the phrase at this point.
0: Yes. I mean, we have a very land and expand model. And so because of that, the freemium lines and trials and how account grows, it just all blurs together a little bit. But the real end goal of it is really even within an account, We're always trying to win over users and the concept of having, even if they are a customer, you want new users within that organization to try your product, to get onto the platform. And so we have a very fluid way of bringing that all together.
1: That's awesome. Leading with vulnerability. So the reason that I thought this topic would be really interesting to explore with you is in your Saster talk about the five mistakes that first-time managers make. What struck me was your vulnerability and specifically in point number five, which I'll go over the five points eventually here, but it's to pursue the wrong strategy. And you were using basically surnames or not the real names of people when you were going through points one through four. And for number five, you said, hey, I don't need to make up a name for this one. It's on me. And like that moment was really cool. And I think the reason I thought it was really cool, because it was really vulnerable. And I don't know if you know who Brene Brown is, but it's someone that I kind of listen to a lot. Yeah. And so- I felt like you took a page out of her book. And for the audience, the background on Brene Brown is she's a shame researcher. And she gave a TED Talk. And the TED Talk, right before she got on stage, she was like, I'm going to be fully out there. I'm going to be completely vulnerable. I'm going to share all of my feelings and thoughts. And this thing blew up. 50 million views. It went crazy. And it was, I think, less about the content and more about her just putting herself out there in a really vulnerable way. And I think people really relating to that in a deep, meaningful way. So I thought you Brene Browned us there a little bit in your talk. Was that intentional?
0: Absolutely. And I'm going to absolutely take that as a compliment. It
1: was. It's unbelievable.
0: I think Brene Brown is amazing. And she has definitely influenced my leadership style. And in terms of leading with vulnerability, I actually do think it is incredibly important. But I also think it's one of the hardest things as a leader to do And the reasons why it's important is because a couple of things. One is authenticity. When I think about what my role is as a leader or my role as CRO at CircleCI or in any of the positions where I was a leader, fundamentally, I don't carry a quota. I don't have any accounts. So I'm not out there closing any deals. And my success is the sum of my team's success. And when you think about it that way, makes your role really, really clear. My job then is to ensure that my team is supported, that they have what they need to be successful because their success is my success. And so when I think about that, then making sure that I'm building the right relationships, the trust factor, the support network with my team is really important. And I can only do that if I am as authentic as possible. Everyone can smell BS a million miles away. And there's so many times where, you know, I have struggled with trying to be a different type of leader or pretend to be a type of person, because I think that's what people want, what they want to lead. But people want to be able to relate to their leaders. They want to make sure that we're in this together, that they can trust that I'm both leading from the front in terms of where we're trying to go, but that I also have their back. And so I think authenticity is super important. You can only do that if you're really being honest about who you are and vulnerabilities, warts
1: and all. Couldn't agree more. So the CultureAmp CEO, Ramp Culture is like an employee feedback and engagement tool. They like obsess over Brene Brown. And he has a quote. As a leader, it's important to remember that your people usually know if something is not working. They just want to know whether you have the courage to tell them. Do you agree with that? I do. And give me an example. Like Maybe I'll be specific. Like You guys compete with, I don't know, Jenkins or HashiCorp or name your tool, maybe. I'm putting myself in your shoes. Man, that's hard. Would you stand up in front of the team and let's say they brought a feature out that is scary, or they're winning deals that are intimidating—the big deals. Would you go up there and kind of tell your team, "I'm nervous." You know, the team's nervous. You know, they're all talking together and they're losing these deals, and they know better than you do. How would you approach that?
0: I would agree with that. I think it it is important. Everyone knows that these under the surface fears, concerns—they're there no matter what, and so. If I gloss over it or I address it, they're still out there. And so one of the key things I can do is bring it to light. And and the other reason why vulnerability or authenticity is super important is because if you're not being authentic, you're not actually having the real conversation. And if you want to have the real conversation, you're going to have to put the issues on the table. And you need to be able to do that in a very clear but compassionate way. You can only ask people to be open and honest if they feel that it's a safe and trusting environment in order to do so. And so that's, again, where vulnerability is important because it fosters that environment of trust and authenticity.
1: I couldn't agree with what I'm smiling as I'm listening to you because it kind of warms my heart in a not so cheesy way. So the other thing going down this rabbit hole that Brené talks about is the difficult thing is that vulnerability is the first thing I look for in you and the last thing I'm willing to show you. In you, it's courage and daring. In me, it's weakness, right? And so... It's really tough to do when we're terrified about what people might think or perceive us. Even for this podcast, I'm constantly battling this notion of like, what might people think of me and trying to stay authentic about what I want to be and who I am versus what else is someone going to think of this, right? Or you coming on the podcast and probably having all of those same emotions or like me re-listening to this after and being my own toughest critic when maybe it's all right. How do you think about that?
0: Yeah, and actually, that is perfect because that's actually my point too on why I think leading with vulnerability is so important. It's because vulnerability is actually a strength. And don't get me wrong, I struggle with the exact same things that you do. Like, I am my own harshest critic. I go constantly above and beyond because I have such high expectations of myself. Like, I'm tough on my teams, and it's because, you know, I'm tough on myself. And that's always something that, you know, I really have a daily practice. On trying to break down those barriers. I think leading with vulnerability is super important because, and I think Brene talks about this, leading with vulnerability almost makes you impenetrable. Like if you are really honest about what your own strengths and your weaknesses are, then you don't have to be defensive about other people possibly coming after you for those things that you're already worried about.
1: Like if you talk about your insecurities, what are you insecure about type thing? Like there's nothing yeah. that anyone can pick you at.
0: Exactly. And so you're ready to put it out there, and it sort of takes out the power, right? The power to harm you if you're able to do that. And, you know, I think that that is really important. In terms of how I'm able to do that, like I said, it's kind of a daily practice. And one of the key things I have to remember to your point before, you know, I'm still only one person, I'm still only one human, even though. Our revenue has grown, my team has grown, my organization has grown, our reach as a platform has grown. I'm still one person, I'm still Jane Kim, and I only have 24 hours in the day and I only have seven days a week. And so, trying to figure out how I get out of my own head about my own insecurities or fears or concerns, the more I'm able to put that out there and sort of deflate those, the faster we can get to how we can all collaborate, work together as a team to accomplish the things that we have to do, right? Because again, I'm still only one person. And so on one hand, I can think of myself now as the singular leader of a almost 100-person organization, or I can think of us as a 100-person strong team that ability to make decisions and forge ahead and take those risks and accomplish these targets, right? It's not about me personally, it's about us as a team, us as an organization. And reminding myself and being able to lead with my vulnerabilities reminds me of that
1: every day. Absolutely. As I've digged deeper and deeper into this, the Harvard Business Review talks about what bosses can gain by being vulnerable. And they say, vulnerability does not mean being weak or submissive. To the contrary, it implies the courage to be yourself. And I thought a lot about this. And it turns out it's really dang hard to have the courage to be yourself. Like I don't know why that's so hard. Like It's actually... Inherently, the easiest thing is just to be you, but it's really hard to be true to yourself. You think it's insecurity? Like, do you think it's the fact that if you are as true to yourself as you can be and someone doesn't like that or doesn't accept that, like, that's it. There's nothing else for you to hide behind.
0: Yeah. I feel like my experience as a leader have truly humbled me in so many ways. (laughs) And, you know... When I think about some of those past experiences, it really brings me back to, oh, yeah, like I am still only Jane Kim with my own unique set of strengths and weaknesses and experiences that make me who I am. And as much as I may want to be a different type of person, a different type of leader, a different type of salesperson, I'm not. And so rather than trying to pretend to be something else, I should leverage the things that I already have. And one of the things I always talk to people about, especially people who some of the more junior members of my team who are looking to get promoted. So I talked to a lot of my sales development team and one of the questions they asked me is, what does it take to be an account executive? And one of the classic problems or traps I see newly promoted SDRs make, right? the first time they're in a closing role, they're very nervous about it. And what they end up doing is mimicking what they saw, the account executives that they worked with before, what they did. And so- you would see them sort of trying to be this person, right? Have this type of talk track, but it's not authentic. If you think of anyone who can really smell BS a million miles away, it's not your team. It's your customers. And so yeah. bring your whole self to your sales process, to your customers, I think is also really important. And so be able to see all the ways and being inauthentic has actually led me to land pretty flat on my face. It's always a good reminder as to why I
1: should be who I am. I couldn't agree more. And kind of the hard truth about vulnerability and authenticity is it takes you being disingenuous and unauthentic for quite some time to figure out like, well, this is not me. Like th- it takes a long time for you to stumble over yourself and then kind of just come into your own and be like, you know what? That is what it is. The knock on vulnerability, like if you were asking Jubin and two years ago, what the knock is like, why wouldn't I do this? I could have come up with a million reasons, but People see your weaknesses and fears. And in some ways I worried or, and I still worry that you'll instill that into them. And maybe I'll bring like a personal example with your family. If you have a teenage or, you know, 20 year old son or daughter, that's of the age to comprehend things emotionally pretty well, and things are going on financially or with your relationship or whatever, I get that feeling of, man, if I was really vulnerable and shared that, wouldn't that pass on to them? Wouldn't that just worry them?
0: So one example I can think of is part of my job is sometimes making the hard decisions. And I don't always share that with my team. Like we have challenges that are coming up with our businesses or directions that we went down that weren't gonna work out. And it's tough because I'm not in a position quite yet and I shouldn't be to tell my team what's happening. And that does not mean that I'm being disingenuous. I think where you can be always really authentic is your perspective and your emotions and your thoughts. It doesn't really have to be about the thing. So an example of this, and this one's going to be a really tough one, is, you know, there are a lot of companies out there right now who have to make hard decisions about their teams. Maybe they're running out of runway or they overinvested in one area or another. And, you know, these are sometimes the hard things that leaders have to be able to weigh I don't think that it's appropriate to bring those up with every single person on the team. You should read in the people who are closest to that problem, who are in the best position to make those decisions, but it doesn't need to be broadly advertised. And that's not being inauthentic. It's honestly being um, thoughtful about the type of information that you share, when you share it, and how you share it. But the things that you can always be authentic about is the job is hard. Making those decisions is tough. and you know, be able to have to weigh those things are some things that I think, you know, leaders can be honest
1: about. Couldn't do more. Topic two, the five mistakes that first time managers make. Again, this was your kind of saster talk. I want to go into them, but I don't want to repeat what you said in the Saster talk. So I have my own thoughts on these. I actually, if it's okay with you, I'd maybe disagree with a little bit of what you said and just love to talk about it.
0: Yeah, and actually, before you jump into it, this really does come from, you know, like I sit down with a lot of my first-time managers and I walk them through these. I'm like, here are the mistakes you're going to make.
1: You actually do it? I do. That's awesome.
0: (laughs) Yes. I mean, well, nowadays I can say, you can listen to my Just go to my
1: video, I'm famous now.
0: (laughs) But yes, I do. Because I think the most important thing out of this is recognizing that you will make mistakes so that you don't try to be perfect all the time. But you're think, already starting to think about how do you recover from these mistakes? You will make mistakes. Maybe it's not these five, but you will make at least one mistake. You'll probably make it very early in your management career. And so rather than sort of being stuck in a place where, to Brene Brown, you feel a lot of shame about it or embarrassed about it, or you're not sure how to what to do about it, that you figure out that you're able to recognize what the mistake is so you can learn from it and move forward.
1: Absolutely. The five mistakes, you will micromanage, you will hire the wrong person, you will fall into the likability trap, you will give bad advice to the team, and you will pursue the wrong strategy. Before I jump into that, the way that I thought about it was you're almost instilling kind of safety for your team to like go ahead and do those things, right? And that's like a leadership principle for you. We just went back to vulnerability, that's a leadership principle for you. Before I dive into the actual mistakes, what are some other leadership principles for Jane Kemp?
0: <laughs> so one of the other ones that I think is really important is around empowerment and accountability. So I think really deeply about what my job is, you know, not my job description per se, and what my sets of responsibilities, but my role is. And one of my jobs is to lead from the front, right? So I think being very clear-eyed about, targets and direction and vision is really important. And this is one of the toughest things to do as a leader to set that because you have to make the call. You have to draw the line in the sand, stick out your arm and say, it's in this direction.
1: Often with imperfect data.
0: Exactly. And here's the secret I'll tell you right now that as you get more senior, you think that becomes easier? It doesn't. The data it's is
1: still imperfect.
0: More murky. <laughs> as you... As you sort of move forward rather than less murky. So I think leading from the front is incredibly important. If I'm not willing to sort of model the behavior or take that leap of faith, how can I expect the rest of my team to do so? So I think leading from the front is really important. I think another principle of mine is around empowerment. I believe so much in empowerment because one of the things I look for when I hire people is that sort of entrepreneurial spirit. It's that spark within you that when you're facing a challenge or you're given an opportunity that you're able to take and say, I got this. I own this. I really want to take my arms around it, wrap my arms around it and really make this my own. And I think that is so important. Like when I talk to my reps, I'm like, this is your book. This is your territory. It's not mine. This is your book of business. How can we support you and make sure that your book of business is successful for you? And so that empowerment is really important. And that's really important because it drives accountability. And so, you know, I think empowerment and accountability go hand in hand. And then the last thing on that is around being a support structure. So I think it's my job to lead from the front. It is not my job to own the how or to empower my teams, right? That level of motivation needs to be there. That's their responsibility. But then I follow it up with support. I see my role fundamentally as a coach. I coach my teams to success. I coach my people to success. And so one of the questions I ask them constantly is, do you have the support? Do you have the resources? Do you have what you need to be successful? Because if you aren't able to have those things, how could I ever hold you accountable to achieving those expectations I may have?
1: I think everyone thinks they want empowerment. They do for the most part. But I think the double-edged sword of empowerment and accountability, there is a downside risk to that. Like that also means that when you're in an organization where you're highly independent and someone trusts you implicitly, no matter what, you might fail and that's okay. But like, that's kind of part of the deal.
0: That is part of the deal. And that's really what my talk is really about, it really comes into play, which is you will fail. You will make mistakes. Maybe it's not these five, sure. It's a little clickbaity, the title of the talk, but you will make a mistake. We are human and the key in knowing that you're going to make a mistake is how you're going to recover from it. How are you going to learn from that and move forward from it? And so another principle I talk about is fail forward fast. If we're going to lose a sales deal, absolutely going to happen. If we're going to lose a deal, I want to lose it early and I want to lose it fast. Because, you know, the worst thing to do is stay in a deal that you will lose and lose it at the very end because you're missing out on a learning opportunity. You're kind of following a false track. And so your failures are going to happen, but they are 100% learning opportunities if you're willing to be honest with yourself, right, to lead with that level of vulnerability in order to recognize that so you can learn.
1: Worst place you can be is a maybe. Okay. You will micromanage. So in this part of it, topic number one or mistake number one, I should say.
0: Oh yeah. This is my mistake.
1: Yeah. What you went through was basically what made you a good rep was you were all over your pipeline. You were really diligent about it. You were extremely organized all over it. And it was tangible. Like you were tangibly responsible for everything that was going on. And it was very planned and meticulous. And the story that you went on to say was that you had a rep on your team who was kind of the opposite. And she may have had her own sets of strengths and these strengths were more relationship building and getting in front of a customer and kind of being good at being customer facing, right? But not the judicious pipeline rigor that you would expect and need to be successful one way or another. And so you tried to impose kind of your style onto her. And I'm paraphrasing, so hopefully I'm not butchering this. So you want to let her be yourself, but you also want to make sure that she does the right things to be successful. That's super tricky what can you do to give someone the confidence to be themselves, bring out the best of them, but still coach them to be better and do the fundamentals that are going to be required to do one way or another to be successful?
0: Yeah. Um, in that example, it became pretty clear to me because basically anything I was trying to tell this rep just went nowhere. It was in one ear and out the other. And the reps performance just continued to suffer. And so it was very clear when I talk about humbling moments, it was pretty clear that my leadership approach and the things I was telling this rep was extremely ineffectual. So that was very clear that I really needed something to change. I think that in terms of figuring out sort of how you foster each individual rep's personal style, the strengths that they have versus like what we know are the core things necessary to do the job, it's a balance, right? There is a set of skills. And I think being really clear about what it takes to be successful is part of that. So being really clear about the skills, like sales is no longer the myth of the rainmaker. I mean, yes, there are these closers that come in and they become legends that are talked about at presence clubs, years past, you know, the stories that get passed down. But yes, it is a skill. Like any person can learn the skill set of sales. Like negotiations is a skill. Executive presentations, right, the ability to do an executive level presentation is a skill that you can learn. And so being very clear about the skills necessary to do the role, we also look a lot at performance metrics. So it's not just about attainment, but thinking about all the metrics underneath that. But then there is the X factor. And this is one of the things I love about sales is there's always a human-to-human interaction that is part of it. And you shouldn't lose sight of that. And so maybe the 80-20 rule applies. 80% of the job is the skills and the competencies and the key metrics, but 20% of it is sort of the, the X vector that you bring in. And I think this is actually really important to foster, right? Because it drives that level of authenticity. If I had actually tried to get this rep, if this rep actually had... I mean, this rep didn't actually adopt anything that I told them to, but had they actually did, probably would have failed also. Probably would have <laughs> been... <laughs> because... They were trying on something that wasn't them. And so, you know, one thing that I really try to remember is every person brings their unique person, their strengths, weaknesses, experiences that shape them who they are. And why wouldn't you leverage those things, right? Wouldn't you leverage 100% of who you are to be the best rep that you can be rather than trying to limit yourself to a typecast that may or may not fit?
1: Totally. Falling into the likability trap. So... I actually, and maybe this was just my experience, but I had a different experience and I'd love to just have a conversation with you about it. So I think the first time I managed a team, I've managed, I don't know, four-ish teams or something, but the first time was, I was pretty young. I think I was 22. I was a BDR for about a year, year and a half. And then I was asked to build out the BDR team. And I over-rotated completely the opposite way. And I think I was projecting a little bit about the way that my boss was and I was probably insecure about being young and whatever it was, but I did not want to be your friend. And I think that was pretty obvious. Harvard Business Review says, why is a human connection missing at work? As leaders and employees, we're often taught to keep a distance and project a certain image, an image of confidence, competency, and authority. And I feel like I was that and over-rotated towards that image. I definitely don't think they wanted to be my friend. I don't know. I had that experience. And I definitely fell into the opposite trap. Any thoughts there?
0: I've definitely fallen on either side of this. And I actually started the talk with a story about just being so uptight about everything as a first-time manager, so stressed out that I just imposed so many restrictions and expectations on my team that like, I would agonize over a Pipeline all weekend and the Monday I'd be right there you know ready with you know all these notes as to why their deals were going so wrong and I remember my boss pulling me aside at some point and she was like maybe you could start on Mondays by just asking your team how their weekends were <laughs> <laughs> and I actually did I put it in my calendar I put a reminder my calendar but you know that definitely is something that I see that happens a lot And that's probably a trap. And the likability trap is the other side of the same coin, which is you're just really stuck in your own head, right? You're projecting what your team thinks that they need and you follow that projection rather than actually understanding who your team is and what they actually need to be successful. And so the likability trap kind of leaves you in that same place, right? Where you think your team really just wants a person that they can really like because if they like you, they'll trust you more. And so you kind of project yourself into a certain image you think that's what your team needs. So it is actually more similar than you would think.
1: It made me uh, kind of cringe inside thinking back on it. Okay. You will hire the wrong person. So you talked about overinvesting in a wrong hire was I think the story that you gave, you had said, Hey, in a few days, it was pretty obvious to me that this may not be the right fit for the organization, but I still spent of my time with this person, and basically ignored the rest of the 20% that were actually driving 80% of the revenue, right? For better or worse. And the question I have is, how did you know that was the wrong person? And I think, can't that person get better? And maybe I'll just unpack it a little bit more because I've also thought like you hire people fast and you're going to get some wrong. That's okay. And I often jump to conclusions about which hires maybe were not the right ones super early. And then it turns out six months later, some of the best reps on the team. What I thought was like, man, jumping to a conclusion early could be the wrong move.
0: I think that is very true. Hiring is is a tough one. And this is really, you know, especially for you know venture-backed startups that are growing pretty quickly. There's a lot of pressure to kind of build the team and to hire as quickly as possible. And so figuring out how you hire well, again, when you talk about sales, it's a skill. You can learn the skill on how to hire well. I think that's absolutely true. You Come in with a lot of preconceived notions about what success is, who that person is, right, during the interview process or even in their early days. And so, part of your job as a manager is to figure out where that balance is, right? And I think one of the most important things in all of these types of decisions is really getting out of your own head and getting out of your own set of biases, unconscious or conscious, that you may have about this person, about their abilities, about their competency level, their skill levels, that sort of thing. And so I think it's really important to balance sort of some of the more subjective things like, oh my gosh, this person used a bunch of words, ums and ahs in a pitch, or they are way too casual in the pitch, this customers are going to go for that. So there's the qualitative piece, but then there's also the quantitative piece too. Like we really try to understand what success looks like and it's not just quota attainment, it's the activity levels, it's how much they're learning the product or the platform, how much they're devoting themselves to some of the activities that we may need them to do, like pitch certifications or learning. All of those things tell you both whether or not the person has sort of the willingness to put in the work to improve or, you know, the ability to comprehend the concepts and the information. For instance, at CircleCI, it is a really technical product. We hire... Business people, though, on the sales side, you do not need to have a technical sales background in order to join CircleCI. But one of the key signals of success we see in our team is the ability to learn the technology pretty quickly. So you don't need to have the experience prior to, but once you're here, you know how quickly you learn the concepts is an indicator of success. And so being clear about what your indicators of success are Allows you to take out some of the subjectiveness and frankly, some of the doubt when it comes to making those decisions.
1: Some of the best reps in my teams have been what I would consider the least technical, but sound the absolute best because they're such a student of the game. Like when they're in a customer meeting, they've studied the pitch inside and out, understand the technology, but I think more importantly, understand the problems that they're solving for customers. And I think it starts with the technology as the foundation, and then you can build on there to start to figure out how customers can implement that technology to actually achieve the business results that they want.
0: Yes. The last thing I'll say on the hiring piece is that, you know, as a hiring manager or a manager, you really can only make the best decisions with the information that you have at the time. So there are certain things that would come to light maybe after if you let the person go or you keep them for too long. But hindsight's twenty twenty, And so the one other thing is you will hire the wrong person, but you probably will fire the wrong person too at some point or maybe too soon. And the one thing to remember, though, is that as long as you're being really authentic about, you know, making sure you're inspecting sort of the work that they're doing, their potential in the role, and that you do that in a very sort of transparent, compassionate way, even if you make that wrong decision, it's okay because you made the best decision that you could and remember that you can trust that.
1: So let me ask you this. Jane, you need to hire 10 people in the next quarter. What's a good win rate? And how many that you think, yep, we hired the right person. What do you think is the ballpark number that is, okay, that's pretty good. I did good there.
0: Maybe not on a per hire class, but the way I'll answer that is, is thinking about overall team performance. But you think about generally speaking, that probably about 10% of your team weren't the right fit for the role, that they're not going to be successful. And so you kind of go into that and you just assume that, you know, of the 10 people that you hired, likely one of them will not work out over the course of the next year.
1: So two questions that I always ask, what does the word grit mean to you? And how do you or your team apply it?
0: Yeah, I have been thinking about this. I think grit is a great word. And what grit means for me isn't necessarily just grit your teeth, you know, bear it, but means, you know, that willingness to make those mistakes and really learn. So grit, actually, if I had to boil it down into one word, grit to me means learning. It's the willingness to learn, the willingness to call yourself out for the mistakes that you've made so that you can improve yourself, improve your team, improve your customers, improve your business, and so if you're dedicating yourself to the concept of learning, then you will have grit.
1: That's awesome. If someone wants to get a hold of you, how should they?
0: Yeah, well, we are actively hiring. So thank you for that. Obviously, with our Series E investment, we're hiring across the board. We're hiring across all of our regions. And so if any of your listeners are interested, please definitely reach out to me. You can reach me at, jane at circleci.com. That would be the best way. Thanks so much, Jane. Absolutely.
1: Thank you. Thank you, folks, for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter, at Jubin Mir, or shoot us an email, gtmg at KleinerPerkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.